Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, I want to talk a little bit today about the um, the Red Summer of 1919 in America, which was uh, perhaps the first actual nationwide explosion of racial violence uh, in America in the 20th century, engulfing 30 cities between May and October 1919. The reason why I want to talk about this is because it tells us an immense amount about um, the economic uh, roots of uh, discrimination in 20th century America and the relationship between um, economic tensions, uh, competition for jobs and uh, and inter-ethnic tensions across the United States. The majority of the violence was directed at black Americans by uh, white Europeans um, of various different um, eth- ethnicities and, and origins. Um, some of the violence was um, complicated in that it was um, localised and involved uh, long-standing uh, feuds and disputes within particular uh, particular cities. Uh, the Irish um, and black Americans clashed in Omaha, whereas in Harlem there was animosity between uh, black Americans and Italians, Finns, Poles and other um, other ethnicities. So the, um, the, the, the uh, phenomena of the Red Summer is, is quite complex and it doesn't necessarily uh, fall into simple explanations. Many commentators point to the migration of black Americans from the South to the northern states, which had begun before the First World War, uh, but grew in intensity during the war. The need for um, skilled workers um, who are relatively cheap uh, draws um, black Americans from the South, uh, partly because European immigration uh, comes to a standstill during the war, uh, the can, the uh, combined effect of um, uh, German U-boats and a, a growing um, American 
um, xenophobia towards um, Europeans of uh, normally of the uh, eastern southern uh, European countries uh, means that there is a, a real labour shortage. Not only this, but um, after 1917, you have uh, millions of uh, predominantly white Americans, but also black, going off to, to fight in Europe. So there is a, a huge call for labour. But the, the Great Migration from the South had begun in about 1910 and continued really into the 1930s. Obviously it tails off in the 1930s because there is, um, uh, you know, there's a lack of jobs across the United States for people to, to go to. A second Great Migration begins after the Second World War and lasts until the 1970s. There were obvious reasons for black Americans wanting to leave the South. And during the First World War, the Ku Klux Klan renews its activities with intense vigour uh, in around about 1915. And there is obviously ongoing and ingrained poverty and deprivation and discrimination in the South, which is not to suggest it doesn't exist in the North, but not to quite the same extent and not to uh, in quite the same ways. Um, but it is really the allure of um, uh, good uh, manufacturing jobs which are, are skilled and uh, provide uh, a decent standard of living in comparison with um, the Deep South that really uh, draws black Americans toward, towards the North. Now, the conventional narrative of the Red Summer is that returning uh, troops discover uh, blacks have um, arrived in their communities, arrived in their workplaces, and this is where the, the violence in, uh, sort of springs from. Now, this is, this is largely the case, but I think it bears um, slightly deeper analysis than that. There, is, um, a, there are a number of instances in uh, the First and Second World Wars and the, in their immediate aftermaths in both Britain uh, and America where the pressures of war have allowed social change to take place and uh, minority groups such as ethnic minorities or women tend to temporarily benefit then following the war there is a, a kind of a retrenchment a return to the status quo and in the case of um, the red summer this is, a, this is a violent return to the status quo uh, it's not simply just a, a reaction against um, finding um, black Americans working in um, the factory where you used to work, where um, you know, where you returned to work. It was um, a sense um, amongst uh, many uh, returning veterans and also um, amongst many white communities that there must be a kind of a, a general retrenchment uh, across America returning um, the uh, newly uh, more assertive um, blacks to their their place. One very revealing source, and I, I know I've mentioned it before in this podcast, is the autobiography of Harry Haywood, uh, Black Bolshevik. Um, Harry Haywood would later, um, in the nineteen thirties, go on to the to study uh, in the Soviet Union, um, and be one of the uh, more influential members of the uh, Communist Party of the United States. But Harry Haywood, um, in his biography, writes about his um, treatment. He was a, uh, a soldier in the First World War, an American doughboy sent to France, as was his brother Otto. And the two of them uh, have some very graphic accounts of their treatment by white officers, whom they allege, you know, is maybe difficult to verify this one, but whom they allege 
um, were very often clan members. And the book's useful because it gives us a nice um, contextual picture, not just of the Red Summer, but of the, the kind of the period surrounding it. And it makes all sorts of interesting connections between the war, the tensions of the war, um, and the actual events of the Red Summer itself. Here's an extract from the book. It features um, the moment where Harry Haywood was reunited with his brother. He, Otto, then told stories about his harrowing experiences in a stevedore battalion in the south, and then in France. The main mass of black draftees had been relegated to these labour units, euphemistically called service battalions, engineers, or pioneer infantry, etc. Regardless of education or ability, young blacks were herded indiscriminately into these stevedore outfits and faced the drudgery and hard work with no possibility of promotion beyond the rank of corporal. With few exceptions, the officers were KKK whites, as also were the sergeants. Many of them were plantation riding boss types, especially recruited for these jobs. Southern newspapers openly carried wantads calling for white men who had experience in handling Negroes. Black draftees not only subjected to the drudgery of hard labour, but insults, abuse and in many cases blows from white officers and sergeants. Otto told us his worst experience was in Camp Stewart in Newport News, Virginia, where he was stationed during the terribly cold winter of 1917 to 1918. For a considerable period after their arrival, they were forced to live in tents, without floors or stoves. In most cases, they only had a blanket, some not even that. New arrivals to the camp were forced to stand around fires outside all night or sleep under trees for partial protection from the weather. For months, there were no bathing facilities nor clothing for these men. The conditions were subject subsequently changed as a result of protests by the men and reports by investigators. His outfit landed in the port of Saint-Lazare, France, and during the great advance participated in the all-out effort to keep the front line supplied in the race to Berlin. They worked from dawn to nightfall, unloading supplies, including all kinds of uh, railroad equipment, engines, tractors and bulldozers. They built and repaired roads, warehouses and barracks. Discipline was strict. Guys were thrown in the guardhouse on the most flimsy pretexts. A black soldier seen on the street with a French woman was likely to be arrested by the MPs. The spirit of Saint Lazare, said one, one officer, is the spirit of the South. Haywood writes about how, uh, in 1919, following his return home to Omaha, in order to protect against um, rival uh, Irish um, militias, the black community armed itself. Um, there were dozens of veterans from his uh, particular barracks who uh, were discharged along with Hayward and they were able to procure firearms. Now, um, he says in the book he doesn't know quite how this happened, but my guess is probably that it wasn't that difficult, that in the aftermath of the war, and this was certainly the case in, um, in Britain, um, the country is awash with unused guns or guns that have been decommissioned. And so the black community in Omaha was quite, quite capable of defending itself. We get too often into this, this trap, I think, of assuming that all victims are victims, all um, black Americans are simply in this, this helpless role, and it's, it's simply not true. There are uh, a number of instances 
um, throughout the civil rights movement of black Americans arming themselves to defend themselves against the Ku Klux Klan. During the wave of violence um, across the um, Midwestern and, and Northern cities, one of the pretexts for violence, violent attacks, and, and I think it is interesting that um, the uh, tormentors of black communities felt that they needed some kind of um, legitimization or justification for what they were doing. One of the pretexts is frequently that of alleged sexual violence. Uh, a black man has allegedly attacked a white woman, uh, therefore this justifies uh, an attack on the, um, the black community in general. There are two key instances where this occurs um, in northern cities, both in Chicago and in Omaha. The Chicago race riot is um, described by Hayward as a, because, because uh, the bloody Holocaust is, is the uh, most serious outbreak of racial violence um, against black people in America's history to that point. And when you read about it, the uh, white population is able to go on the rampage uh, against the black community for nearly a fortnight. Um, there are um, 50 people killed, majority of them black, by the end of the, uh, the rampage, and over 500 people injured. Over a thousand homes are destroyed. So it is um, you know, a, a catastrophic moment in, in black American history uh, in Chicago. The uh, similar event takes place in Omaha, um, Haywood's home, where a black man is accused of attacking a white woman and the mayor refuses to hand him over to a lynch mob, believing that obviously um, a due process needs to, to take place here. Um, and it is the white mayor that nearly winds up being hanged um, by the lynch mob um, as well. Um, the uh, the accused is obviously you know, murdered in, in fairly short order and um, the, the man nearly dies and is rescued by the, the chief of police. So you know, this, is, um, this is kind of interesting um, instances of uh, kind of mob, uh, collective mob violence. The fact is that there is, seems to be little coordination between these outbreaks of violence across America. There is um, no sort of centrally um, organised conspiracy to bring violence to um, America's cities. This is a, a, a spontaneous phenomena. And always with spontaneous phenomena, with kind of outpourings of pent-up um, anger or resentment or, you know, however unjustified, there always, to my mind, seems to be some kind of greater motivating factor behind it. And to some extent, it's about the economics, but to another extent, it is a kind of a, a cultural phenomena. The um, uh, changing um, of, or the challenging of um, strict um, r uh, racial, uh, l not so much laws, but s strict racial um, codes and boundaries and discourses um, had led to this, this immense um, resentment, outpouring of anger and uh, kind of a, a sense of, of anxiety and panic uh, amongst white Americans. Their um, world had been fundamentally altered. Perhaps there is some kind of mental connection to the upheaval that the war years have brought, uh, a sense that, um, you know, 
war has uh, been this great disrupting factor. And it was, it's interesting that these events happen within roughly the same time period as the, uh, the, the great moral panic of, of the first Red Scare, um, again, which indicates um, a, a great deal of uh, panic and anxiety on the, on the part of the, uh, um, the, the dominant groups within America that their way of life is being in some way threatened or challenged or undermined. Many black Americans had returned from the war um, energised and um, profoundly altered by, by its experience. Many had returned with uh, a sense of confidence. I think it's, Hayward says he was not going to be referred to as boy anymore. And he believed that uh, the experience of war had been radicalising for an entire generation of young black men, uh, over 100,000 of whom served for America during the First World War. Paradoxically, some black Americans, such as um, Hayward and his brother, who had come from the North, had never really experienced the um, Jim Crow segregation of the South until they actually joined the army. And once again, this is a transformation experience for them because they connect this prejudice not with the localised bigotry of the South, but with the, the experience of being American, serving in the US Army uh, itself. There's one other very interesting area here that's worthy of exploration, and that's the, um, the, the uh, reaction of uh, white uh, mobs to unionisation by um, black sharecroppers in the South, particularly. The uh, sharecropping system, whereby the um, poor black farmers would rent land from uh, white uh, landowners, and uh, the return that the landowner got was uh, a share of the crop that the, the black farmers grew. Obviously, this is a, normally an immensely exploitative uh, means of uh, of running things, and it, it meant that um, even after the end of slavery, the white uh, plantation owners or former plantation owners were still guaranteed a fair degree of uh, free or almost free labour. And the um, one of the outbreaks of violence in the South occurs at Elaine in Arkansas, right at the very end of the Red Summer in October 1919, and it um, happens when the local black sharecroppers decide that they're going to form a trade union, a trade union that will represent them and their rights and try to make sure that they get paid a fair amount for their uh, produce and that the rents reflect um, a, a fair amount of produce that they have to hand over. The response of the uh, white mobs in Elaine uh, is extremely brutal. There's a, a mass explosion of violence, and the uh, reason behind this is a sense of anxiety about um, the about black sharecroppers uh, organising, uh, becoming politically organised, and um, to some to some degree, um, in the eyes of uh, local um, Elena's um, being um, radicalised and it, it sort of overlaps with um, the, the Red Scare in that there's a, a fear that um, you know these uppity Negroes are now perhaps even going communist on uh, going communist as well 
Um, so that, that's where you, you have the kind of the, 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 the meeting point of, of two anxieties um, connected through uh, racial prejudice. Now, on the subject of fraught race relations, um, a weekly explaining history announcement, if you happen to be attending the uh, February the 2nd Sovereign Education A-Level Lecture Day, Modern Britain, 1951 to 1964, I'm going to be there. So I'll be taking the 145 presentation, Notting Hill and Nottingham, how adequate was the response to immigration and race in the period 1951 to 1964? The answer, in short, is not very. Okay, so I um, hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, there's uh, a bunch of stuff uh, in the pipeline for explaining history, as I've, I think I've mentioned recently. Um, there are uh, a couple of new titles on, on the way. Um, I'm just working on... Uh, Chang, Mao, and the Battle for China, 1919 to 1937, and a uh, new study guide to the causes of World War One. So look out for those in the next month or two, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.